UVA scores a massive upset win at Duke, while Virginia Tech has now won four in a row. Is the NCAA tournament still a possibility for either or maybe both Commonwealth clubs? And with National Signing Day and the ACC football schedule released now behind us, we'll talk a little college football this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 76 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you, my friend? Good morning, Mike. Happy Super Bowl week. Yeah, isn't it fun? It's, uh, you know, depending on your your interest level, you're either kind of steeped in the game and breaking down the matchups. Maybe you're a big uh, betting person, and certainly now with legalized sports betting, there's so many more avenues and uh, all the prop bets, everything from the coin toss to the, the first score, and um, or people who are a little more casual, right? You do the squares and, and <laughs> try, to, try to get that, that score. I imagine even with uh, legalized online gambling that those are still be popular at, at, at Super Bowl parties. Or, hey, if you're like me, a big part of Super Bowl is, is what you're going to eat on Super Bowl Sunday. So I've already started working on that menu. How about uh, in Casa del Teal? What, what, what is the Super Bowl like? Well, we go elsewhere. We go to my uh, brother-in-law's crib and join join with the family and, and watch the game. I mean, there'll be a couple television televisions on, but there are no Bengals or Rams fans in the family. So I, I think the watching this season will be a little more casual. I actually enjoy that. Now, um, granted, I'm a Dolphins fan, um, and I'm, I'm 43, so the last time they were in the Super Bowl, I was too young to appreciate it, and uh, I've never had a rooting interest <laughs> in a Super Bowl, essentially, in my lifetime. Uh, but I like... I mean, I like when there's sort of none of that for me in the game and you can just kind of take it in. I, I don't watch a ton. I think we talked about this last time, but I don't watch a ton of regular season NFL just because of our work schedule and, and everything we have going on. And, um, you know, we both kind of got into it here a lot. I know in the playoffs uh, and the games have been so great. But, you know, for me, I, I like a Super Bowl where I'm not emotionally invested and, and hopefully it it's a close game. What do you make of the matchup? Because maybe the Rams, but I think coming into the year, nobody would have, would have had the Bengals there, uh, even the biggest Joe Burrow fan. So what do you make of this matchup? Can the Bengals block the Rams? To, to, to me, that's what it comes down to. And, and again, I'm like you, Mike, hardly an NFL aficionado, and I'm, I'm not an every Sunday kind of guy. But that that Bengals offensive line seems to be problematic. And Aaron Donald and Von Miller are no joke. Yeah, if you're just looking for a, a matchup problem, you know, throw out the fact that, you know, I think the Bengals have done some winning ugly and, and they're a little bit of a long shot just from a purely breaking down the games. I mean, Aaron Donald and we saw him right doing that in college. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that I knew it was going to translate to being this dominant at the pro level. He's fun to watch. Yeah. And, and David, that's not often the case for defensive linemen, right? I don't know how many times in my life I've thought, ooh, that's a guy I would, I would pay to watch. And an interior defensive lineman, no, no less. 
Yeah, in interior, but they do interesting things yeah. with him. They, they'll line him up all over the place. He's that versatile, and I think that's part of his his greatness. And, and if you remember in, in college, they, they did some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going into games and, and coaches talking about, you know, the problem was it, it wasn't you knew where he was and you threw a double at him. You had to figure out where he was coming from. And, and then if you throw a double at him, what did that do to the rest of your um, your blocking plan? So it's going to be fun. And um, certainly the quarterbacks, I think that um, either quarterback is a feel-good story, right? Oh. I mean, Joe Burrow and, um, you know, what a, what a great story he's had in coming back from the injury. And um, he's certainly been embraced in Cincinnati the way he was embraced and, and earned it uh, in the Bayou. Uh, great story. Then Matthew Stafford. I mean, you you just think if you're the quarterback of the Detroit Lions that the only Super Bowl you're going to win is on Madden in a video game, and <laughs> the, the, the twist his career has taken, and um, to, to get with you know Sean McVay and, and and that offense, and you know Matthew Stafford's always had a ton of what they like to call arm talent. Uh, now he's got some receiving talent around him and some blocking talent in front of him. And what a difference that's made, huh? As if moving from Detroit to SoCal <laughs> isn't hitting the lottery big enough. <laughs> he moves from the Lions to the Rams and, and lands in the Super Bowl. No, good on him. And Mike, how about this? Joe Burrow, if the Bengals win, would become the first quarterback in history to win a Heisman, a national championship, and a Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I saw that, and that that surprised me. Maybe it shouldn't have, but that really surprised me. David, what's what's more surprising, the national championship or the Heisman aspect of that stat? Well, it's the combination, but yeah, it it the, the Heisman is so random because it's such a numbers right. driven thing. But but that comment that to hit that trifecta in Howell if he if he does it Sunday, I mean, <laughs> dang! It could be the first guy to do it two or three times, right? <laughs> Again, I, I shouldn't say as a Dolphins fan and you know right, Dan Marino, Marino getting that Super Dan Marino. Bowl and everybody saying, "Don't worry, don't sweat it." You know, Dan Marino will be back there five or six times at least in his career, and uh. That was all she wrote for for the great Dan Marino and my Dolphins. But yeah, and and again, you know, Joe Burrow, you think about, he's had this charmed career, right? Well, has he? I mean, he had to transfer in college. It wasn't working out. Right. It wasn't working out. Then he gets to the pros. He gets injured. So, you know, yeah, it it may have a fairy tale ending if you could have an ending in in year, what, two, three of your career. But uh, I mean, he's had some real challenges to get to this point. I think it's part of what uh, endears him and and particularly endears him to the fans in Cincinnati who, let's face it, they've been through some challenges. Yeah. Well, and he's an Ohio kid. I mean, he's, he's one of their own. Which is why he was at Ohio State, and yeah, um, you know that that would have been the fairy tale, though, right? You go and win it at Ohio State, then you go win it with the Bengals. But I think this is a, a richer story and uh, a better story. David, we had some great stories uh, from Monday night at Cameron Indoor. Let's hop over to college basketball, and before we get into the the game and, and Virginia's big win, uh, I think you and I probably sometimes differ on this one, but the <laughs> the experience of being courtside at Cameron. Uh, do, do you does your take on that soften when you get to be courtside for a game like that? Is it is it richer for you? Sure. Number one, because not to get too inside baseball, we don't sit courtside in very many arenas anymore. Now, whether the folks who listen to this podcast care, that that's that's up to them. But I care, 
and it enhances my ability to communicate uh, what is happening in an event when I'm it, for basketball when I'm courtside, and that's why I love the ACC tournament and the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament uh, because of the seating those folks provide us. But it it's challenging, it, it, Cameron, as as you're alluding to, because. I mean, we we joke about it sometimes, but it really is no joking matter. God forbid anything ever happened and they had to evacuate that building because we're shoehorned in there. And I don't like getting elbowed in the head, which I did <laughs> twice on Monday night. Yeah. And I don't like knees in my back and having the struggle to just get into my chair. But I also like having the game-winning shot happen all about <laughs> 24 inches right inches from where we were sitting yeah and i think for me the more i've covered games there uh the more maybe the novelty has worn off a little bit but it does enhance the coverage and like you said when it's a game like that and an ending like that and maybe yes maybe no paulo bancaro did did he foul reese beekman on that shot i could have fouled Reese Beekman on that shot. Yeah, you you could have fouled Reese Beekman on that shot, um, and it does. It, it does. Um, I think bring more to our coverage. And um, if they could just move them back, it used to be they'd had the kids on the the first step of the risers. Yeah, and it feels like they've abandoned that, and now they're kind of wedged between our chairs. And um, I know to my right we had Greg Medea, our, our colleague from the Charlottesville Daily Progress, his first time covering a game there, and you know he was fully on the side of. How awesome is this? And it is. It is. It's great to be that close. That's a great atmosphere. The energy in that building. I bring it up, David, in part to bring this up. My goodness, has a building ever gone from rocking to silent? Mm-hmm. The way Cameron, because Duke had to come back in this game, as we're going to get into, and then Reese Beekman hits this game-winning three, and you know the old cliche of you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. You couldn't find it because the building's packed, but you could hear it. Uh, that was a, a dramatic, stark, just twist of mood. It really was. It, the, the game wasn't over, but in essence, you pretty much thought it was. They put 1.1 seconds back on the clock. But yeah, they, in essence, Cameron thought, the, the, the Cameron crazies thought they had stole one. Because Virginia had led for the better part of 30 minutes of of, of the 40 on the clock. And somehow Duke's up too late, and then here comes this underneath out of bounds where first Kihei Clark's going to inbound it, and he can't get it in because Mark Williams, seven foot one, is guarding the ball. Timeout UVA. Jason Williford, the associate head coach, draws up another play to have Beekman inbounds it. And what, what do they always say, Mike? Who's the most dangerous guy on a last-second inbounds play? The guy inbounding the ball. You can't lose him. And what did Mark Williams do? He lost Reese Beekman. And to to Mark's credit, I thought you he know, took you, he took full responsibility. Yeah, he knew it. And and you know, it's interesting when you watch that play on replay. Um, you know, it wasn't a super hard cut by Beekman or a double move. He just kind of drifted out. He wandered, and right? Moved up. Yeah. And and then credit to, to Kihei Clark, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but credit to Kihei Clark for finding him, right? Mm-hmm. Because what a hectic situation. And I think sometimes that's a difference between, yes, why does it matter if you've played at Cameron or if you've played in an NCAA tournament or an ACC tournament, if you've been in those big spots? I think a less polished player feels the pressure of, 
clock's ticking down. I need to get a shot up. And Kihei Clark just had this great balance of, because that play was not designed for Reese Beekman. Right. It, it was designed for either Armand Franklin or to come back to Clark if there was an opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kihei Clark is able to keep his eyes on the rim, keep his eyes ready to take the game-winning shot, but also see what's around him, feel what's around him, right? Great players feel what's around him. And, um, you know, Reese Beekman gave a ton of credit to Kihei Clark, not just for finding him with the pass, David, but I wrote about this play. The fact that Virginia had the basketball mm-hmm. to take this game-winning shot was completely due to Kihei Clark, just sort of a unbelievable play in some ways. Virginia had missed its bid to tie the game, right? The ball comes off the rim, and Theo John gets the rebound. And Theo John's, what, six foot eight? He's, um, he's got 11 inches and 70 pounds on Kihei Clark. Right. This isn't this isn't a fair fight. This isn't close. No. And Kihei Clark, um, kind of like your little brother, you know, <laughs> jumping up and slapping at the ball when you're you're playing and you're toying with him. Kihei Clark gets his hands on the ball. And now, admittedly, I thought it was a a pretty quick whistle. Quick whistle. Yep. For the tie up, but a great hustle and effort play. That if Kihei Clark doesn't do that, UVA has no chance to win the game. But instead, he gets the tie up, possession arrow in their favor, and then the play we just walked you through. And um, I don't think we can say enough about that. I don't think we can say enough about Reese Beekman. Yeah, the three is obviously a great clutch shot um, to have the stones to to take it and hit it uh, is huge. But, you know, Reese Beekman is also the one who who got them in position there with he kind of drove to the rim, got essentially blocked, comes off the rim, gets the ball back with a steal on the backcourt and lays it in to tie it. I think that was 66-66. Yes. Uh, Another huge, I don't know, small play or overlooked is the way that Reese Beekman described uh, Clark's play and some of those other. Those were huge plays at the end because, David, you're right. I thought Virginia dominated in the first half. They were up by as many as 12. I thought they outplayed Duke for the first maybe 10 minutes of the second half. And then here comes Duke and all that talent and the crowd gets going. And it just, I don't know for you, it felt to me like it was slipping away. And at one point I looked over at Tony Bennett and I don't know if this is true, but it looked like he was just staring at the clock, willing it to move a little faster. <laughs> like, hey, my guys have played great. My guys have, have done everything I asked of them. But if that clock doesn't hurry up, Duke's going to get over the top. And and in a sense, David, that's what happened. And then Virginia still was able to answer in the final minute 40 with some of these clutch plays. Absolutely. And, you know, Mike, you t- talk about Kihei Clark's awareness and court presence gee did we see that have we ever seen that before in an ncaa tournament game? Oh, you know yum center momity missed free throw yeah i mean he's been doing it for four years yeah and, and that is probably more remarkable because at that point right he's a rookie He's, he doesn't yeah, he, have that polish. That was uh, the most amazing. That, that will be, I don't care what he does from now on. That is a defining play of that young man's career. Yeah. And, and, and you know, not a bad one to have. Right? No, no. <laughs> we were talking about, you know, if Joe Burrow wins the Super Bowl so quickly, hey, if Kihei Clark, you know, if he had exited on that play, yeah. he's a part of Virginia history. But I, I think it does show you that some players, and Kihei Clark's one of them, they just have that innate feel for the game, um, and, and certainly he's improved over the years. And and David, I want to talk about Kihei a little bit right here because Virginia's making this push. 
can they get over the hump? Can they get to the NCAA tournament this year? It'd be an eighth straight tournament for them. I don't know. You know, the numbers aren't tremendously in their favor, but there's opportunities remaining in the schedule. But Kihei Clark is playing like a senior who wants to make sure it happens. The last five games, he's averaged 13 points a game. That might not sound huge, but that's a lot of points. For him, One, it is. Yeah. For Kia Clark. And two, in the low possession, low scoring style Virginia plays, you're getting 19, 15, 12, 11. Uh, those kind of outputs from Kia Clark, that's huge. It feels like he is taking his game to another level here at this point where Virginia really needs it. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's what you expect from a senior and someone who is accustomed to winning and has no intention of doing otherwise as he exits the program. All right, David. So what does it all mean? We saw them move up eight spots in the net rankings. Those those are so important. I mentioned they've got some opportunities. They get Miami again. They get Duke again. Uh, they get Virginia Tech on Monday night in Blacksburg in a game that uh, I think is going to be almost an elimination game for both schools. Uh, so what did Monday night mean? Should we start be looking at, at Virginia? Should we start looking at the resume? Do we think they, they have a chance here? Well, they certainly have a chance. And, and Mike, just Really quickly, back to Monday night, two things. One, Jaden Gardner, his defense on Paulo Bancaro, remarkable. The only shot Bancaro took in the second half was his prayer at the horn. Season low, nine points. And oh, by the way, Gardner had 17 points and what, eight rebounds himself. Just a superb effort. Number two, the the two-headed monster that Virginia now has in the post was Shedrick and Kafaro, 24 and 12 combined. Got Mark Williams in 18 different kinds of foul trouble, and that was huge. And the collective defense on A.J. Griffin, yeah. right, who, who has a career-high 27 at Carolina on Saturday, 48 hours later, he has two points, non-factor. So anyway, I, but I digress. I apologize. Um, Virginia's number 80, Mike, on the net. That is not – NCAA tournament, the lowest ranked team to ever make the tournament in the net era. Now we're looking at a very small sample size was number 73 St. John's in 2019, the first year of the net last year, number 72, Wichita state squeezed in. Um, But the Cavaliers, you know, they've got three quad one opportunities ahead of them at Virginia tech at Miami home against Duke. And they've already got two quad one wins in their hip pocket with Providence and Duke. So the Cavaliers are certainly, they will not lack for chances. And David, I would have told you a week ago that chances are, are not all that valuable when you consider you got you to gotta win to cash them <laughs> in, right? But now that they won at Duke, I mean, it, it didn't feel like a one-off. And I know some of the Carolina media pointed out that you know Duke was coming off the big emotional rivalry win against UNC. David, they won that game by 20. And some of their key players were resting at the end of it. So I don't know that, and, and I know that that rivalry is, is heated, and I know they put a lot into that game, but I don't know that I buy the, oh my goodness, you know, Duke was having this major letdown after the Carolina game. Did you did you think that Duke was, I don't know, sluggish or off, or, or did you think that uh, Virginia maybe exceeded our expectations, or both? I would remind people who would take that slant that Virginia also played on Saturday. Yeah. And had a really big win at home against Miami. So it's not like Duke was this exhausted bunch and, and Virginia was fresh. Same amount of rest, 
And oh, by the way, Virginia had to travel. Right. So no, not not buying. I was at Duke, Carolina, and you couldn't help but walk away thinking, "Dang, that's that's Final Four caliber bunch," and and it still is. My Monday night does not change my opinion there, but no, Virginia earned that win. Mike, think about this at Carolina on Saturday night. Duke led by at least ten points for the final thirty six minutes. <laughs> At home against UVA, Duke, A, never led by more than three points, and for the entirety of the game, led for about four minutes. That's how well Virginia played on Monday. Yeah, and I think that is why you look at that game and think, okay, now these chances that are out there, yeah, I could see Virginia cashing in some of them. I think it's going to be hard to get Duke a second time. Um, I think Mike Krzyzewski, I think that team, that program, I think they've got that, you know, maybe Nick Saban thing to them where <laughs> you get them, especially at their place, yeah. they're going to come back and get you. So I, I don't love that one. Um, but Miami? I think, you know, Miami's been great and the style they play can be challenging for Virginia, but hey, I, I think that's a winnable game. And uh, I think Virginia Tech, that again, we're going to get into it. That, that game to me is going to be essentially an elimination game for both teams, um, plus a rivalry game, uh, plus all the love of, of Valentine's Day <laughs> Add, <laughs> adding to the atmosphere. I think it's going to be great. And, uh, and let's go to that now because... Virginia Tech has won four in a row, and David, I'll admit, you know, this this was a team that, that I had sort of left for dead a, a while ago. I think a lot of people had. They, high expectations coming in, a lot of unexpected struggles coming out of the gate. So what's changed for Mike Young's bunch? I mean, the fact that they're making some shots. <laughs> Mike, think, think about this. Virginia Tech, for the first time since joining the ACC in 2004-05 season, has shot 50% or better in five consecutive conference games. Let's try to put that into context, how extraordinary that is. I went back over the last 12 seasons, because that's how far back I have ACC media guides. In those 12 seasons, that's happened only one other time. Time. The only other ACC team to shoot 50% or better in five consecutive league games was NC State in 2018. It's the only other time. They are now, let's acknowledge up front that the schedule yeah. has eased considerably. They played Pitt twice in three days. That helps. Yeah. Pitt may be the worst team in the league, and, and, and Georgia Tech is among the worst in the league. And Florida State, where the Hokies won, Florida State is absolutely decimated by injury. But still, you know, 50% for five straight games and the way they're shooting it from from three, you know, they, they're, on a, they're on a serious run. I, just before we started recording today, I was on the phone with Storm Murphy, the Hokies point guard. And I think he has such a unique perspective because he was on that 2019 Wofford team that Mike Young coached to 30 wins and a first-round shellacking of Seton Hall in the NCAA tournament. And that also had the most prolific three-point shooter in the history of college basketball in Fletcher McGee. And I asked, I asked Murphy this morning, I said, okay, better shooting, better collection of shooters, 2022 Hokies, 2019 Terriers. And Mike, he loved the question. He wouldn't answer it, <laughs> but actually he did. You know, he, he said, look, I think we had more shooters 
at Wofford and Fletcher McGee, of course, you know, yeah. the, the, the career leader in, in, in three pointers. But he said, just, he said, just the fact that you asked that question shows how good this team is, this tech team is in terms of shooters. Yeah. And guys who can get their own shot too, which is sometimes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Sometimes there's a difference between a team of spot up shooters who, okay, how are you going to get them space, especially in the ACC, versus a guy like Naheem Aline, who has been hit and miss this season, but has the athleticism to elevate and get his own shot. I think Hunter Couture has improved in that regard. But, you know, David, this team lost three in a row before the four-game winning streak. Mm-hmm. One of those losses, the first one, was to Boston College. Yeah. So there is a tremendous difference in, and I say it because Boston College is also among, you know, with Pitt and Georgia Tech, the worst teams in the conference. Yep. So there is a big dramatic difference in how they're playing going from losing to Boston College to now winning four in a row. And I think a big part of it is the play of the bench, the production they're getting. Sure. And the way Mike Young is using them, uh, whether it's Sean Padula or Darius Maddox, uh, David Gasson. I think Mike Young has maybe had his hand forced a little, but has just gotten more comfortable with the idea of he's got to get more from the bench and he's going to stick with those guys. And those guys are producing. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked earlier on, on, on some episodes, Mike, and I, I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but like in Virginia Tech's first five ACC games, the bench contributed a total of like 19 points. And now they're routinely getting that every night. You know, either Padula or Maddox or Kassan or sometimes multiples uh, uh, among them are are really contributing. You know, Padula went absolutely nuts in Tallahassee uh, along with Hunter Couture the, the day they made, what was it? 18, I forget what it was. When they shot 72% right. from three, 18 of 25. You know, the best three-point shooting ever in an ACC game since they moved the line back. So, no, you know, Mike Young would be half crazy not to be playing those guys the way they're producing. You talk about those numbers, and in the last win uh, over, I guess it would have been Pitt, uh, 16-22, I'm counting them up right here, 30 points from four guys off the bench. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's... That's difference making, mm-hmm. um, especially when you maybe you haven't gotten exactly what you wanted at a Naheem Aline. And, you know, Storm Murphy's had some up and down games. Um, you know, I think Virginia Tech needs it. I think they're getting it. And I think it's why things are turning around for them. Now, they've got Syracuse on Saturday. Syracuse has been <laughs> d- defensively challenged. Is that a fair way to describe Jim Beheim's bunch this year? Jim, uh, Jim Beheim w- w- would consider that description charitable. Right. That was that was complimentary. Yes. Uh, but you know, when you look at that matchup, um, what do you see? And and are we to the point? And and probably for Virginia too. They they play Georgia Tech. Um, before the, the Monday night game, are we to the point where if you're Virginia Tech and you have postseason aspirations, you have to have the games like Syracuse? You absolutely do, Mike. It And again, to revisit a subject that we've discussed before, the discrepancy between Virginia and Virginia Tech in the net rankings is so jarring. Mike, the Hokies are 37 spots ahead of the Cavaliers at number 43. Now, I haven't checked this morning's. And I'm sure they're updated, but neither played last night. So it's it's very similar. Virginia Tech, Mike, does not have a quad one win. None. And you know how many opportunities they have left? One. At Miami on February 26th. One shot before Brooklyn at a quad one win. 
And no team has ever made the field as an at-large without a quad one victory. So Virginia Tech is going to be such a curious case for the selection committee if the Hokies continue to win. Yeah, we, we talk at, at football playoff time about the eye test. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, just kind of the feel you get watching a team or thinking about who they've beaten and who they've lost to. And um, I don't know that Virginia Tech eye test score jives with uh, how well it performs in, in the net ranking and those metrics, but uh, it'll be an interesting question. And, and it brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. Take it or leave it. The loser of Monday night's UVA-Virginia Tech game is completely out of the NCAA tournament picture. Take it or leave it. And let's start, as always, with David. I'm going to leave that one, guys, because I, I, I feel like we've made this mistake before. <laughs> you know, I'm almost certain we wrote off the Hokies at, at two and seven in, in the ACC. And we, we probably have written off the Cavaliers a couple of times as well, given some of their travails. Let's just say that the loser is going to have an Everest-like climb to get back into the bracket, into bracket consideration. But completely out of it, I'm leaving it. Thank you, David. Mike? I'm going to take it, and here's why. I think that if Virginia loses, I don't think there's the math left. Um, Again, I don't think they're going to handle Duke at home because of what we talked about. I think Duke's going to have that kind of revenge factor. I just don't think the math is going to be in Virginia's favor if they don't get the the game at Virginia Tech um, to bolster their resume and, and that net ranking high enough. Now, Virginia Tech is interesting, but here's my problem with Virginia Tech. I think UVA is going to hang around the bubble talk, regardless of what happens Monday. Hang around. I don't think they can get it done if they lose. If Virginia has beaten Virginia Tech twice. Twice. And then Virginia Tech is better in the net ranking. When you go to look at Virginia Tech, I think the committee is going to have a hard time elevating them over Virginia. Because again, I think Virginia will hang around and be respectable. I think it takes both. I think it would take both teams out, essentially, (laughs) if (laughs) Virginia wins this game and then doesn't get get the job done. Because I just think for Virginia Tech, two losses to Virginia is going to matter more than two losses to an ACC opponent who's a quad two or three team at the end of the season. I think because it's the rivalry, I think think that's going to loom large. Um, Because I think at some point... If it gets to that point, the committee will be looking at both of those teams. And I just think they're going to be very cognizant of Tech lost twice to UVA. So if you say UVA is not good enough and they beat Tech twice, well, then Tech's not good enough. And that's why I think uh, Monday night is so massive for both of these programs. Does that make any sense, David, or am I out of my mind? Oh, well, you are out of your mind, but that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> But you've done how many podcasts with me? 76? You're definitely out of your mind. <laughs> but, but no, it, it, it does be because th- there are times when the selection committee is parsing a couple teams and, and head-to-head absolutely matters. Now, might we get a Thursday UVA-Virginia Tech game in Brooklyn? Oh. You know, who, who knows? Uh, that that would be fascinating. I'm almost certain that the teams have never met in the ACC tournament. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Or have they once? They I, I thought I remembered. Yeah, maybe. About, yeah. In, in D.C.? Yeah, that, that was I'll have to go back and look it up. But as soon as we're done recording, we're both going to jump off and, and try to look that up and remember. But um, 
I think I hadn't thought about the prospect of them meeting uh, in the tournament. Yep, 2006, um, Mike. Okay. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it would be an element then. I guess you have a chance to make up for it. So, so Dean, I want to go back and soften my answer. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, presuming that they don't meet uh, yeah. in Brooklyn, yeah, I, I think this is – and either way, I think there there's no – I think we both agree, absolutely critical. And it's going to make, uh, I think, Monday night a lot of fun, right? Oh, 100%. No, I'm really, Castle is going to be ridiculously loud Monday night. It's going to be great. And I saw they they just relaxed some of their uh, COVID requirements in terms of, I believe it's masking there at Castle. Um, No, vaccination vaccination okay so it's it's uh there, there's no hindrance then to getting into the building if you're a tech fan uh be interesting to see how many uva fans get in that's been a new thing for the last couple of years right is trying to keep the opposing fans out of your building uh it'll be interesting to see how many how many uva fans make it in because well i think we remember but um armand franklin mentioning right how many tech fans got into the building when the teams mm-hmm. met in charlottesville yeah um, do, do UVA fans then take that as a challenge and try to find their way into Castle? Very good question. I my, my guess is you're going to see very little navy blue and orange inside that building. Yeah, it's a different time of year, big game, and I think it's going to be a hard ticket to come by. Uh, now, easier to come by right now, football tickets for, <laughs> for both these programs. Yes. Uh, coming off some down years, there's excitement certainly in both campuses for the coaching changes. Uh David, we can have a little college football talk right now. We did Good. Super Bowl in the NFL. We did college basketball. We got to the the more timely stuff up front. But, hey, let's look at we had signing day. We had the schedule release. We've got some some inroads here to get back to college football. We both love it. So let's start with signing day. David, big deal or not that Virginia Tech had a 12-to-1 edge over UVA in terms of signing in-state high school prospects? What Was, was that a, a big deal? It's not a big deal when in, in comparing by saying 12 to one, is that a big deal to me? No, because it's the like a half of a recruiting cycle yeah. for the new staffs. And they essentially inherited the commitments and the signees from the, from the previous head coach and, and his assistants. However, for Virginia tech to sign 12 in-state high school players, including two that the Hokies flipped Mm -hmm. from the Cavaliers. That to me is a big deal. Yeah, I I agree. I I think certainly, you know, Tony Elliott and his staff didn't get the same uh, maybe head start um, that that I guess Brent Pride did, although I don't know what's better there, right? Having your coach fired and and the indecision there for recruits starting earlier or, you know, less time to lose them because Broncos decision came later in the calendar. I don't know which scenario uh, plays out better in terms of keeping recruits, but I do think it's interesting that that Brent Pry came in, made it very clear that in-state recruiting was going to be so important. Um, I think Justin Fuente and his staff, uh, maybe too little too late, but they had very much shifted shifted their rhetoric mm-hmm. and, and we've talked about this I, I think some of the criticism of Justin Fuente and his staff is more about perception than reality in terms of how they valued in-state recruiting but hey when, when you're selling a product right perception is everything um, I, I think they deserve some of the credit for starting to turn the tide and I think pride delivered on hey this is what's going to be important and, and I think getting all those kids and those flips I think that helps 
drive home his message that that it isn't about Texas to VT or even North Carolina right. to VT, that that really is. And, and again, maybe part of that is perception over reality. But I think Brent Pry gets it that that has to be your banner. That has to be what's on your marquee. No matter what you put on stage, the marquee has to read, we want in-state guys. And, and I think Tech sent a very strong message with their class. Absolutely did. And, and, and even to the point where, you know, they, they, they brought in a, a graduate transfer quarterback from South Carolina who grew up here in, in the Commonwealth, Jason Brown. You know whose whose dream it it always was to to, to play at, at Virginia Tech. So, yeah, I mean, and that if if you want to count him, that that bumps it up to to, to thirteen yeah. of of the twenty seven in state. But Mike, I think every UVA fan, every UVA coach, and you and I would all agree that the Cavaliers' most important recruit was number five. That's- and, <laughs> that that left-handed kid from Ohio who's coming back to sling it one more season in Charlottesville. Yeah, and, and Tony Elliott made the point that um, you know maybe the most important recruiting he's going to do going forward here, at least in this first year, is going to be in that locker room this spring, right? Mm-hmm. How many times have we seen it that you get to the end of spring and maybe you don't love where you are on the depth chart? Or mm-hmm. um, you know, for these guys, it's getting a new a new no new coaching staff. Uh, Tony Elliott and his staff cannot afford massive attrition at the end of the spring. I think they need to be out there and, and add some pieces anyway at the end of the spring, but they cannot afford to lose. And um, I think it's going to be key. You mentioned Armstrong. I think he's a huge part of that. And we've heard him talk about this, right, David, in terms of recruiting other guys, right? Are you yeah. more likely to stay at UVA because Brennan Armstrong's your quarterback? I think mm-hmm. so, right? That would be, I mean, be a selling point for me, for you. Oh, 100%. Because, I mean, without him, sorry, no chance. <laughs> just just none. But to, to have him back in the fold is is definitely a selling point. And, Mike, you mentioned you believe the, the Cavaliers need to go out and do some more work in the portal, and I couldn't agree more, and the position of need is running back. Yeah, which is interesting because we've had so many talks about promising running backs that have come in to Virginia, and respectfully, I don't think any of them have really panned out. Um, You know, Wayne Talapapa was a very productive player. Um, Mike Hollins has showed flashes. Uh, Ahmad Faustin looked at times like he was going to be, and I don't know how much of that was the offense, right? They ran the quarterback a lot. Bryce Perkins was a leading rusher. Brandon Armstrong, his first year as a starter, was a leading rusher. Um, how much of it was the offense? How much of it was it that these guys uh, just just weren't hits? Um, but I think you're right. I think they need a difference maker at that position. I also think, and, and part of this is the transfer portal and, and that, but how much for Virginia and Virginia Tech did they both lose in terms of the big guys, the beef, the mm-hmm. offensive and the defensive line? And I think we saw it in the recruiting, uh, whether it was the high school kids and rebuilding the ranks, whether it was some of the transfers, particularly that UVA's brought in. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I think there was a real, I think it was Wendy's that used to have the, the commercials of where's the beef. Yeah. And that felt like a little bit of the theme of, of this recruiting cycle too. I think both these coaches came in there's the attrition. There's the chain guys leaving for the NFL. If you're Virginia Tech, guys transferring to some big time programs. If you're UVA, I think both these coaches maybe I don't want to say panic, but probably took a 
a deep breath and stock of what they had and said, we need to get bigger on the line. And, and I thought both teams took steps in that direction as well. I believe I have these numbers correct, Mike, of the Hokies' 27 new players, 11 of them are offensive or defensive linemen. Yeah, that's, that's called a focus. Right? <laughs> that's called uh honing in on on what you're missing and yeah and in um, in in terms of virginia the the the, the incoming transfers you, know, you got the camper kid from michigan state on the d line the flores kid from dartmouth on on the offensive line i mean those are the type of types of additions that uh the cavaliers need to continue to make well we got to look also at, at both teams schedules for the upcoming year. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I feel like every year the schedule comes out and there's parts of it that somebody's going to hate and parts of it that somebody's excited about. And everybody thinks somebody got the advantage. Somebody got the bye week at a more <laughs> opportune time. Did you have any major takeaways um, for these two programs in terms of just the way their schedule shape up? Just the peculiar nature, Mike, of Virginia's back half, four consecutive home games. That's The last time a schedule was originally constructed that way, where the Cavaliers would have four straight home games that late in the year, was, excuse me, 2011. Now, you say unusual and intriguing, catches your attention. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage? Because there's a part of me that thinks if, if you're Tony Elliott, boy, you'd like to ease into things, right? Your first year and some home games would help that happen. Not that the beginning of their schedule is murderer's row, right? Right now you're on to it. So I I think there's a balance there of, hey, if you can, I think every coach would say, if I can play uh, my winnable games early Mm -hmm. and my tougher games at the end at home, Right. That's a pretty darn good schedule. Uh, But we don't know what Tony Elliott has. We don't know what this team has. So to to say that at Illinois or at Syracuse uh, or at Duke, early on that, that those are easier games on paper, certainly based on what those teams have been. But David, I don't think we know what Virginia is going to be. No, um, we certainly don't know what Virginia tech is going to be like either. Uh, I would submit that at Duke, (laughs) (laughs) we have a pretty good idea. (laughs) Yeah. I I think, I think we're chalking that one up on the left-hand column for UV. No offense to Mike Elko and, and the new staff in Durham, but that's been a pretty lopsided series here of late. And I would suspect it would continue to be, you know, you mentioned the road game at Syracuse and the reunion with Robert and I and Jason Beck. Yeah. I think that's going to be a fascinating game. Um, I think, I think Illinois is going to be a really interesting test in week two. Um, And, you know, you and I are skipping over Richmond in the opener and maybe we should call Bronco Mendenhall. And, and ask him about your first game as a Virginia coach being against Richmond because, and certainly Bronco ended up turning things around and, and I'm in the column that believes he did an outstanding job at UVA, but Richmond got him in that debut game. So I, I think Tony Elliott, maybe take a lesson, uh, a lesson from that one. How about Virginia tech? What, what jumped out to you on, on their schedule? Well, th- there were no real surprises. I, I, I guess Thursday night getting West Virginia, you know, you, you knew the Hokies were, were playing the Mountaineers at home this season. And we even knew uh, around the, the date it would be. But we did not know it was going to become a Thursday night game. And Thursday nights at Lane Stadium have a history. And for it to be the Mountaineers coming in there for the first time in more than a decade, uh, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I think so too. And I think what our sources, I, I believe you heard the same thing, is that the old Dominion game, which technically says Friday or Saturday, we're hearing that's going to be a Friday night game. I think that return trip to Norfolk, considering what happened when ODU beat Tech there, I think that's a fascinating and fun uh, night to hopefully be a part of. Well, not, not only that, you're you're talking about Ricky Ronnie coaching against Brent Pry. Yeah. Two two former co-workers at at Penn State who uh, have have been disciples of of James Franklin. Mike, I I think that that Friday Saturday thing for Virginia Tech Old Dominion may well hinge on whether Old Dominion is still in Conference USA or has escaped in time to, to play a Sunbelt schedule. If the Sunbelt and ESPN control that game, I think it's almost a certainty it will be on Friday. If it's Conference USA and it's just hash of television partners, there's no telling whether that'll be a Friday or a Saturday. Where that ends up. And I think uh, Brent Price said that uh, when the schedule came out that his wife's already begun making the tailgate plans with Ricky Ronnie's wife for that that game in Norfolk. So I I think that'll be a a great storyline and and a lot of fun. And um, I'll be honest. I mean, if there's a game that I'm, you know, looking forward to when I look at the schedule, and, and this is sort of a, a cheap and easy answer, but hey, these two coaches going head to head for yeah. the first time. I mean, we always look forward to, to UVA Tech. So again, maybe a little bit of a silly answer, but I'm really looking forward to, and not just the game, but the, the recruiting, everything about Brent Pry against Tony Elliott, the way we were looking forward to and, and enjoyed Justin Fuente versus Bronco Mendenhall. There's something special about Two coaches coming in for rivals at the exact same time. Um, it makes it easy for guys like you and me, right? Because all of the comparisons, you don't have to shift and say, well, so-and-so has been there two years longer. Everything's even, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's starting from square one. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, to November 26th at Lane Stadium uh, and the next however many years the, these guys make it for in, the, in that head-to-head battle. Let's just hope that the first encounter between Brent Pry and Tony Elliott is a little more competitive than that first Tech UVA game with Bronco Mendenhall and Justin Fuente. My goodness. Oh, that was ugly. It was. And and what was that, 52 to... 52 to 10. That that rings true. That's I don't have a media guy in front of me. But the thing that jumps out to me about that was, and it's what I loved about Bronco's program, just because he was so deliberate. Um, what, what happens? Yeah, it was 52 to 10 in 2016. Then the next year it was 10 nothing. <laughs> you say, okay, they're getting closer. And then the next year, 34-31, Tech wins in overtime where UVA had had the game it felt like right there before the, the Perkins fumble and then the next year they break through and win it and uh, I, I think it's just one of those and it, it was again it's something I loved about Bronco he really did grow that program incrementally and it was the same with the bowl games right you don't sniff a bowl game then you go to a bowl game and just get absolutely blasted then you win and then you're moving it's it just everything about the way he built it um Tony Elliott, if you're listening, I love that incremental growth. And uh, let, let's see if you can't follow a, a similar arc there, and in, in terms of making this rivalry something special for us. Yeah, I, I, I would suspect that with Brennan Armstrong at quarterback, 
that Virginia's going to get more than 10 points against the Hokies on November 26th. Just a guess. I, let's put this way. If you set the over-under at 10 on UVA points, I'm taking the over. Yeah, and, and again, you know, a ton of credit to Bronco, and I think Tony Elliott, we, we've talked about how much we like him as a hire, but when you talk about transforming where UVA football was to where it is, hey, Bryce Perkins and then Brennan Armstrong, it shows you right there how important the quarterback position is, and it's maybe the, the biggest challenge then for Brent Pry t- is what is he going to do behind center? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the spring at Virginia Tech, Mike, with the quarterback situation is so intriguing. Yeah, and I think it's going to be telling, and, and I think you know, <laughs> it's so interesting because everything for both of these schools this spring, what's the offense going to look like? What's the defense going to look like? What's the de- Who's sticking and going after spring? All of that. But that quarterback spot at Tech, to me, that that's storyline number one. Um, and, hey, Brent Pry, you got to get it right. Because if you remember Justin Fuente's first year, very similar. What's he going to do at quarterback, right? Like, we, we know how it turned out. So maybe it's you don't look back on it that way. But going in for Justin Fuentes, what are you going to do at quarterback? What is going to be the answer? And then he goes out and gets Gerard Evans, and they have that great year. Uh, you know, Brent Pry, if you want to mimic anything from the Justin Fuente era, <laughs> some tech fans would cover their ears and say mimic nothing. But get it right at quarterback, you're one. Because um, that is going to be, I think, a huge challenge for the staff. No doubt. And my money's on Grant Wells, the the transfer from, from Marshall, just because of starting experience. But who knows how each one may pick up the offense. And uh, very, very, very fascinating. Yeah, it should be fun. Super Bowl Sunday should be fun. David, I didn't get to ask you when we came out in the opening, but uh, so you said you go off. I think you said brother brother-in-law's house. Yeah. Uh, what is the go-to food or what's the spread look like there for Super Bowl eating? It's usually kind of a Tex-Mex theme, but Mike, I would be very surprised if some Cincinnati chili doesn't make its way into the buffet this year. That sounds good. I may have to swing by and, and grab a bowl if that's the case. That sounds excellent. Well, I hope you guys enjoy watching the game, and I hope you all enjoy listening today, watching the Super Bowl, and uh, as we head into the stretch run here for basketball, it's going to be a lot of fun. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods, and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next time.